0: We hear from television writer, Courtney Jane Walker, a snippet from Monty Python legend, Terry Jones, and we go along with American War author, Omar El Aked.
1: And I show up at 3 in the morning at the U.S. border crossing and they say, what are you doing? And I say, I'm going for war training before I go to Afghanistan. Uh, and of course they search the hell out of the
2: car that yeah. night. I listen to them on the subway, honestly. There's a group of teenagers sitting, I make sure I sit pretty close and I just listen to what they're saying.
1: I have a 25% success rate of these novels actually making out into the world, so I'm not optimistic, but but I do have another story that I'm working on and I, I hope it turns out okay. I thought
3: we were, we'd probably do the funniest TV show around. <laughs>
0: Welcome to the House of Krause, I'm Richard Krause. It's a beautiful day out there. And you know what that means? All the wild people that you don't wanna talk to are on the street. It's really hard to do anything when it's like this. Everyone's moving a little slower. They're taking up space on the sidewalk. They're slowly shuffling off to go to the subway, go to work, do whatever it is they're gonna do. But you know what it means? It means they're in your way. So why not come spend a little bit of time at the House of Crows? There's always room here for you, always room. A little bit later, we're going to talk to Courtney Jane Walker. She is fascinating. She's a writer for the new Degrassi series. We'll tell you all the details in a little bit. Uh, But she also has had some other interesting television research jobs. We'll get to that in just a little while. Later, American war author Omar El Akhet comes by. This guy has done it all. He's been embedded in Afghanistan. He was at Guantanamo Bay reporting on that for the Globe and Mail. Now he's written a book and uh, he's surprisingly funnier than you think he's going to be for someone who has seen a lot of really dark stuff in their lives. First up, though, I wanted to play just a little taste of an interview that I did as part of a roundtable a few years ago, probably about five years ago, with Terry Jones. He was promoting a movie called A Liar's Autobiography, and it was the story of Graham Chapman. Some tapes have been found. They banged them together in a documentary form. Uh, Chapman, of course, was one of the founding members of Monty Python, uh, as was Terry Jones. We talked, and I asked him about his legacy what will be the legacy i was reminded of this interview earlier this week when i saw an article in the guardian and it said terry jones i've got dementia my frontal lobe has absconded Uh, he is someone who was not only a director and an actor and a very very funny person one of the beatles of comedy Uh, but also an academic, and uh, it's a shame now what has happened. He has uh, kind of lost control of... Uh, His frontal lobe, as he says. Uh, He can no longer lead the conversation. He can no longer uh, remember day to day things, according to members of his family. Uh, In tribute to someone who meant so much to me. It was such a pleasure to meet him and uh, whose comedy and whose work meant so much to me. I wanted to play just a couple of minutes of Terry Jones talking about the legacy or not of Monty Python and working on sucking all the laughs out of his work. Here's Terry Jones. How do you feel about the, the, the legacy that you left behind with them?
3: Oh, um, <laughs> well... In four words, please. I <laughs> need, I need a, a very quick sound bite. <laughs> He's like, I not I don't see it as a legacy, really. I, I mean, I, I just can't see it. Um, I do People talk about it, but um, uh, you know, I have no idea what impact we had on uh, on comedy. Um, was it because you were in a bubble when it was happening?
0: You were just working so much. That yeah, yeah,
3: I think so. And uh, and also, it was like we were we were wondering whether anybody was going to laugh at it. I mean, uh, the very first show we did, um, John came, uh, came behind. Mike Palin said do you realise Mikey that we may be doing the only television show that nobody ever laughs at (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, I think that's what we we, we had an audience of old age pensioners who thought they were going to come and see a circus and uh, (laughs) and I think um, Graham and I were doing the uh, the first sketch we recorded was the flying sheep sketch uh, um, and I think there wasn 't a lot of reaction to it <laughs> <laughs> bewildered pensioners um, uh, <laughs> I think that 's what prompted john 's remark um, and also that we we were sort of so terrified that nobody would laugh because when we did the holy Grail um, the people the we showed it to an audience of uh, investors i think and they laugh for the, about the first five minutes and then total silence <laughs> and absolute silence uh, for the whole of the film um, it was the worst night of my <laughs> <laughs> evening of my life and, um, and so uh, and then I thought well I remember uh, when we'd done uh, the, Now for Something completely Different which Ian McNaughton had directed um, he'd uh, it, we did a dirty f- the, the sketch about a dirty fork somebody complaining about a dirty fork and um and he uh, nobody laughed at, 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 at the scene um in in the, in the film version and I realized that Graham and Ian had put on muzak uh, over the over the thing, and I thought maybe that's ironing everything out. so we took Muzak off and uh and then everybody laughed at it. so <laughs> I thought maybe the same thing's happening with the with the Holy Grail that uh, the, the, the you know we had such a thick soundtrack of atmosphere, wind and bird song and clothing rustle and footsteps and uh and stuff like that um, that that maybe that's fitting in all the comic comedy timing mm. so um, I went through the whole film again and uh, basically sort of uh, kept everything up until em- anybody spoke and then took it all out and, uh, and then push it back in at the mm. end of the scene yeah. um, and but then by that time we were so nervous about the film uh, having had this <laughs> searing ex- experience <laughs> um, that that uh, we we think to people uh, we'd show it to f- friends and, and like twenty at a time or something like that and we'd say um well, can we get worried about our film can you come and watch it and uh, see what you think and so um, they'd come in and they'd say well it's all right yes <laughs> and, uh, I don't think you should worry about it but. um but they didn't laugh really. So, um, <laughs> and the first time we uh, we we, uh, we we had an audience that laughed was in Los Angeles uh, when Terry Gilliam and I came over for film festival, and uh, um, and there and there, that time we didn't have time to take everybody on so, <laughs> to tell them we we're worried about our film. So. <laughs> that was Terry Jones. Keep
0: him in your thoughts. Courtney Jane Walker started her television career sitting in a courtroom as a researcher for the CBC television drama, This Is Wonderland. That grabbed my eye. Lately, she's been working for the Degrassi family. For five years, she has been uh, writing on Degrassi, The Next Generation, and Degrassi Next Class. We started off talking, though, about This Is Wonderland. What do you learn sitting in a courtroom that could be useful on a television show? What kind of trials did you cover?
2: So I was sitting in Old City Hall, all the courts in Old City Hall. So those are all mostly pre-trial courts, right? right? So it's people who have just been arrested or whatever. And it's crazy. It's every kind of human.
0: And and – so they've been arrested presumably like the night before so you're not seeing them at their best they've spent a night in jail yeah Yeah. and that was when the
2: dawn was still open
0: the dawn jail for people who aren't from Toronto the dawn jail uh, was a notorious cesspool where uh, horrible yeah Yeah. it was horrible it was kind of like uh, what you hear about Rikers Island in New York only 10 times as bad
2: and crowded and awful and so these people would come in after a couple nights in the dawn and they'd be either they'd either go to the bail court Or drug bail court. They had a whole other bail court for drug offenses. And then uh, one of the most interesting places to research was actually mental health court, which is in the basement. And it was started by an amazing judge. I believe his name is Ted Ormston, And he started the mental health court realizing that there were many people with mental health issues who were slipping through the cracks and just getting, you know, shut back into the Don jail, reoffending and so it was about diverting people into, right? You know, in a place where yeah. they yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And so you were essentially kind of looking for story ideas. Yeah, look, yeah, yeah. And and did did
2: it work? Uh, I I found my notebooks the other day actually, and just pages and pages of the most. You know, the the funniest things you've ever seen and the saddest things you've ever seen. Every, the whole spectrum of the human experience you could see in those rooms and uh, people at their worst, people at their best, and just really see how the law isn't a black and white thing. And it was, you know, the lawyers of the people who had been arrested and the crown attorneys just working within the law to help process people through a system that's totally jammed and you know this was a while this was in like 2006 2007 but they were still using paper records
0: i'd suggest it's even worse now yeah and and you know one of the things that happened this week and we won't get into this so much but someone who allegedly killed their wife mm-hmm. was just let go because they he spent 56 months in jail or something and, and, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. Someone looked at this and said, well, we have to let them go. Yeah. And it is endemic of a systemic problem yes. where, you know, th- things can't move along quickly enough.
2: It, uh, it was mind-boggling even then that nothing was digitized. Yeah. Like I remember mm-hmm. I was sitting in one and they called a, guy's, a guy up to the docket and they said... Okay, uh, we can't find your file, so you're going back to the dawn. Oh, we'll try again tomorrow. Wow! And I saw that a lot.
0: You're going back to a hellhole for another night. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, yeah. I mean, that's not a very cheery topic, but no. it's definitely it's something that needs to be addressed for sure. Yeah.
0: And so from there, you moved on to uh, lots of other shows, mm-hmm. but you're you're working on DeGrassi now. Yes. This is, you know, this is a show that has become multi-generational. Oh, yes. And and it's not only, you know, in its appeal, but just physically (laughs) has become multi-generational. Why is it that this show, when there are dozens, hundreds probably, of other shows that are kind of aimed at the same audience Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, that come and go, some last for a few years, some don't, Um, this show has remained amazingly resilient. And why?
2: Well, because they're always going to be teenagers. Teenagers are always going to make stupid decisions. (laughs) And they're always going to be looking for a place that says, hey, it's okay if you make mistakes. Right. Uh, there are things to learn. And But also on the show, we the school is the main character. So kids come in, kids graduate. We bring right. in new kids. They cycle through. They make all the same mistakes that teenagers do and we find new interesting ways of dealing with those mistakes and then they graduate and then we can introduce new characters and respond and that makes us pretty nimble so we can respond to... Um, you know, what are the concerns of teenagers now versus even five years ago.
0: Interesting, because if you look at a show that was probably a contemporary of the original Degrassi Mm -hmm. series, like something like Saved Like the Bell, I mean, there are just two that couldn't be any more different, even though they're essentially dealing with the same subject, kids in a high school. uh, You know, one was an airbrushed fantasy of what it was probably like to be in high school if your parents were rich and whatever else. And another was one that dealt with Suicide. It dealt with you know all yeah. sorts of things that actually were affecting teens.
2: Absolutely, and I think, and this is something that our the amazing creator uh, Linda Schuyler will mm-hmm. always say is that um, we need we neither trivialize nor sensationalize. Right. So uh, we and we really do our best to hang on to what the real experience is, as opposed to the experience uh, that an adult would want to present to a kid. Right. So you know we really work on that, and then they're. The times are changing, and so that makes us able to say, okay, well, okay, we might have done STDs five years ago, but we haven't done STDs and Snapchat.
0: Right. Like, right, what right.
2: happens, you know? So there's, things change so fast for teenagers that it makes us able to tell different stories. And how
0: do you stay current? You're no longer a teenager. I am not. I'm not giving anything away here, <sighs> I don't think. So how do, you,
2: how do you stay current? Uh, Twitter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I mean, teenagers teenagers, if you're listening, everyone can read what you put on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> TV know. producers can read what you put on Twitter. but so we, we just try to stay we just try to pay attention to how they're using social media and the music they're listening to. and I, I listen to them on the subway honestly. If there's a group of teenagers sitting, I make sure I sit pretty close and I just listen to what they're saying.
0: The Toronto Screenwriting Conference has been around for a number of years now. It's happening in Toronto on the weekend of April 22nd to 23rd at the Metro Convention Centre. If you want more information, go to torontoscreenwritingconference.com, and then there's a long uh, thing to find you. You have Mm -hmm. to go through slash sessions slash I am a discussion on the female gaze, Uh, but you can Google your name plus Toronto Screenwriters Conference plus Princess Princess. Sparkly, but maybe, and it will not come up. Yeah, something <laughs>
2: and, will come up. Uh,
0: so you are uh, leading a, a conversation on.
2: Yeah, I'm on uh, the panel. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: titled "I Am" a discussion on the female gaze. Mm-hmm. What can people expect when they go see it?
2: So we're gonna. Uh, Katrina is gonna be leading the conversation, and we're just gonna we're gonna explore. Uh, what what it means to write from a female perspective. And to go, you know, not to get too in the weeds, but, you know, there's this theory of film, right, about the male gaze that the camera is a man's eye. So something that got really criticized for this was that movie Passengers.
0: Yep, absolutely. Right, and that... With with, uh, Jennifer Lawrence and and Chris Pine. And the idea was... Chris Pratt. Or Chris Chris Pratt, Pratt, rather. Chris Pratt, where the idea was that he's going to be alone on a spaceship for a very long time and he wakes up one of the passengers to, and without telling her that he's doing this. So rude. Don't do that. And and she becomes, you know, his love interest and companion until, you know, she kind of discovers a thing or two about how she got there.
2: Right. So, you know, and if you go back through the history of, you know, TV and film, you find that It's most of it is from the male perspective and telling male centric stories and even down to the way the camera operates. You know, you can look at the way the camera looks at a female body versus the way the camera looks at a male body. And that is, you know, the male gaze. So I think what we're going to talk about on this panel is ways to kind of intervene in that and make um, some alternative media that centers women and women's experiences and women's POV and what that what might what that might look like.
0: And that will be happening on Saturday, April 22nd. It's at 12 noon. It's mm-hmm. a very agreeable time. You can still sleep <laughs> in and, and still catch the whole thing. Go to an early
2: brunch. Can, <laughs> there's,
0: <laughs> there's lots of things to do yep. before and afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's called I Am a Discussion on the Female Gaze. More info at torontoscreenwritingconference.com. If you'd like to hear more from Courtney Jane Walker, go see her at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. It's at a very friendly time, noon, April 22nd. The talk is called I Am, a discussion of the female gaze. Omar El Akat, he's the author of American War. He was born in Cairo. He grew up in Qatar. He moved to Canada with his family as a young man. He's an award-winning journalist and author who has literally kind of seen and done it all in recent world history. He traveled around the world to cover many of the most important news stories of the last decade. His reporting includes dispatches from the NATO-led war in Afghanistan, the military trials at Guantanamo Bay, the Arab Spring Revolution in Egypt, and the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson, Missouri. He's won all sorts of awards, and his new book, American War, is garnering raves from critics, and I think it's probably already been optioned to, to be turned into a film. We go way back with Omar. We start at the beginning. We find out how he went from a computer science degree to covering wars. Here's Omar El So I want to go back. I want to sort of dial things back a little bit. You didn't start off to be a writer. Uh, you have a degree in computer science. I don't really see the direct line between computer science and covering, you know, the front lines of Afghanistan. But how, how did all that? No, work?
1: No, ne- neither did my parents. Um, <laughs> I uh, writing writing has been the only only thing in my life that I've been anywhere near good at um, since I was five years old. Uh, <laughs> I I don't have many skills, but I can write. Um, and, but I grew up in a part of the world where y- you don't necessarily think of anything artistic, anything creative as something you do for a living. Um, You know, I grew up in Qatar in the Middle East, and the idea was that you would go to school and then you would become a lawyer or an engineer or a manager of some sort. Um, And so of those sort of perspective career choices, when I got to Canada and went to college, computer science seemed like the most interesting. Um, But I got to Queens, I got to Queens University, and I went to my very first computer science class. We had to program a robot out of a maze, (laughs) and I wrote the program. And I hit start and the robot went around in circles three times and crashed into a wall. And that's when I knew that computer science was not for me. But I was too lazy to, to find any other major. So I sort of plowed through it and, and got a very unearned degree, a degree <laughs> I certainly do not deserve.
0: <laughs> How did your parents feel when you said, you know what, I'm going to be a writer. This is – it's all I've ever wanted to do. I'm going to be a writer.
1: I sort of – I expected them to, to be not okay with it. I mm-hmm. expected them to – because – you know when you when you come to this part of the world and you're not from this part of the world and you're trying to sort of make a start here uh, the idea of taking those kinds of chances is not is not something you're super comfortable with i mean we come from a part of the world where you need to you need to establish yourself, mm-hmm. um, and you need to do it in a, in a fairly traditional way. But they they were very supportive. I mean, I got my start working at the student newspaper at Queen's, and then I was very, very fortunate to land an internship, uh, a summer internship at the Edmonton Journal. And then the following summer, uh, I got an internship at the Globe and Mail. And that, for me, was, was a way to write, but also to have a paycheck. You know, if I'd started out writing fiction, That's a much less certain sort of way to go about it. So I I got very, very lucky. What you
0: said, the writing was the one thing that you always knew that you were good at. Um, When you were young, what were you writing? Were you just writing short stories? Were you describing your life around you? What was going on?
1: The very first piece of fiction I remember writing um, was for the school newsletter at my grade school. And it was anti-littering week. And I wrote an anti-littering story called "Dirty Harry and the Tin Can Trash Man." So, from the get-go, I was plagiarizing. Uh, basically, I, I don't think I don't know how I got to "Dirty Harry," but I'm sure I saw it on TV somewhere. And just um, no, I, it was it was the idea that you could reach into somebody's head and manipulate the strings right. was astounding to me. Um, it's the same, you know. I, I when I was in college, I wrote a lot of comedy. I wrote for the humor paper. And it was the same thing. You can reach into somebody's head and manipulate the strings, and you get a reaction. And that was, that to me was was magic, um, and I was hooked. And
0: does that apply or not apply to your journalism career? It, it, I mean, you're you're planting ideas in people's heads. You're not manipulating the strings as much.
1: So journalism was was a great counter education to that, in the sense that, you know, the first day I, dri- I arrived. Um, there there used to be a legendary editor at the Globe and Mail, a guy named Greg O'Neill. Was a fantastic human being, passed away recently. And he would sit down, all the interns, all the new hires, and he would say, here's what you need to know. Uh, reporters are gods, and uh, <laughs> but editors are atheists. And it was his way of letting you know that you are about to have your copy destroyed. If yeah. you wrote a flowery sentence, if you overwrote it, if you tried to back into the lead, he was going to take care of that in a hurry. And so for someone like me who loves flowery sentences and loves overwriting, uh, you know, the first draft of that, of, of the book I wrote and everything else I've ever written in fiction is very, very flowery. Um, that was a great counter education.
0: I'm speaking with Omar El-Aqqat. The book is called American War. It's in stores right now. Uh, we'll talk all about the, the, the book uh, shortly. But we're sort of we're, we're working our way up to that. Uh, so uh, you're working at the Globe and Mail. You're interning. Just walk me through what happens when you're doing that. Are you sent out to cover traffic accidents and whatever else in the city here?
1: My very first day at the Globe, I showed up as a summer intern. I was the the bottom-of-the-barrel intern hire. They'd already hired their summer interns, um, but there was an investment reporter who was going on parental leave at the last minute. So they bring in this—I must have been 23, maybe. They bring in this 23-year-old kid. I remember distinctly that morning— I checked my ATM, and I had $5.03 in my account, and they bring me in to write investment columns. Um, So that was my first assignment. I was working for a guy named Marty Say, who was the investment reporter at The Globe, and I spent most of the summer doing that, doing investment reporting. Um, He walked in on the first day and said, "Um, so-and-so at BMO is saying that you should buy on high beta, and I want you to write about it. And I said, great. I have a lot of follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah, um, so like it was a, what's high beta, yeah, what's they, a beta? Who, yeah. Yeah, who is this guy, what's going on? Um, so that was the first little while, and then they hired me on, I was, I was very lucky to get a 10-month contract after that, and then at the end of the 10-month contract, they hired me on full-time. I'm pretty sure I started on, I wanna say a Monday, right. and then maybe that Friday, so like a few days after I started, uh, the Toronto 18 arrests happened, so biggest ter- terrorism arrests in Canadian yeah. history. Um, And they look around and they say, does anybody here speak Arabic? Does anybody know anything about Islam? Does anybody here have any experience living in the other side of the world? And, you know, two of us put our hands up, maybe (laughs) me and the theater critic. Um, And so that was the next year of my life was covering that story. So that changed
0: everything for you, it's fair to say, probably.
1: It did. Um, it, It was the first time I got to dive into a story. It was the first time that you had an editor say, Get me anything on this. Mm. Don't worry about length. Don't worry about anything because we were beat off the off the get go. You know the star was on it, yeah. um, and and we were beat badly at the beginning, and so there was a sense of we need to catch up. We need to get on this. And so myself, Greg MacArthur, Colin Freeze, these reporters, we were out there putting in. You know, you'd work the day shift and then you'd work the night shift, and it was it was amazing journalism.
0: This is kind of like what I consider almost old school journalism now because, you know, you've sent, you're sending teams of people out literally burning shoe leather. Mm-hmm. They're out on the street. They're asking questions. They're, they're doing it that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I think as newspapers, you know, diminish in terms of the amounts of money that they are spending on things, we're seeing less and less of this.
1: Yeah. It was, I mean, there's still tremendous journalism being done. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I live in the states now, so I don't I don't catch up with Canadian journalism as much as much as I should. But you know, Robin Doolittle's series, yeah. the, the Unfounded series, was one of the best pieces of journalism I've read in years. Um, it's it's happening everywhere that your your budgets are being cut, mm-hmm. and so you have to cut corners. And you know, readers can tell. Um, And so, you know, places like The Globe where I worked are still fascinating, amazing newspapers. And they're going to be the last lemmings off the cliff because they're the biggest ones and they have the most money. But the the general trend is you need to figure out a way to make money off of this because the really good stories don't come from these one-off, you know, this is – I worked on this a day anyway. They come from months of work and that takes money.
0: It does take money. And I think though, interesting, you live in the U.S. now. The journalism that we're seeing coming out of the U.S. now – is better than we've seen for the last few years. I think just covering stories uh, related to the Trump uh, um, situation. I think that we're seeing a, a little resurgence of it, and people apparently are responding. They're buying newspapers again. They're they're subscribing to newspapers again because it's so hard to tell what's true, what isn't, what's going on. And I think it's I, I think journalism now matters maybe more than it has for some time.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's the art of of telling the unusual. And I can't think of a more unusual time in my lifetime. You know, it's, there are days when I, I, I would watch the news in the States and I would think if I tried to pitch this as a work of fiction mm-hmm. or, you know, a TV show, sorry, I, would, I would get kicked out of that office. You know, even things like the, the you know, Jared Kushner's uh, apartment building that, that the Chinese are involved with, yeah. 666 Madison Avenue. You yeah. can never get away with that. <laughs> That's, it's just too much, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's a very strange time for real life. Uh the book is called
0: American War my guest is Omar El Aked. Uh so how did you end up then as a war reporter because that's a big leap from doing even investigative journalism on the ground here but uh going to war zones is another thing.
1: Yeah, I mean w- from the get-go what I wanted to do with with my journalistic career was was tell stories that had I not told them they wouldn't be told. Right. Um that's that was always the sort of driving the, the the thesis statement behind the career, and so I agitated and agitated to try and get out there, um, and finally what they had at the time this was 2007 then again in 2009, um, Graham Smith a tremendous reporter um, was the Globe's man in Afghanistan, and every time he would sort of go to Dubai to decompress and you know kind of just just take some time off they would bring in somebody from from HQ to, right. to and so finally they sent me out there. Um, and uh, the way it works is you can't you can't go to a place like Afghanistan. The insurance company won't let you unless you go take war reporter training. So that was my first thing. I had to go to a farm in Virginia and have some British special forces guys blow up fake explosives next to you and fake kidnap you and stuff, which led to a very surreal border crossing where I show up at three in the morning at the I tried decided to drive down there. And I show up at 3 in the morning at the U.S. border crossing and they say, what are you doing? And I say, I'm going for war training before I go to Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, and, of course, they search the hell out of the car that yeah. night. Um, anyway, so I, I, I get out there and it's, it's, it's fascinating because it's the exact opposite of, of the daily journalism I was doing. Mm. You know, I, you'd, you'd be in a scrum in Toronto in City Hall or something. And you know that if you didn't write a word, everybody would still find out about this. Right. But you get out to Kandahar and you're out in the suburbs with the polio vaccination team, and you feel worthwhile as a journalist. You feel like you're telling a story that otherwise wouldn't be told.
0: I didn't know about war school training. I didn't know any of that stuff going in. So you have to do that, I guess, to get used to the idea that terrible things are going to happen around you when you're actually covering a war. So they send you to a, a course. How long is it? Is it a, a week? Is it a day? Is it a...
1: It's a, The one we went to was a week. I yeah. think there's a bumper crop of, of former Special Forces guys who, who do this sort of thing. But we were there for a week um, and they... They teach you things like this is, you know, if you see anything metal, walk away. If you see sharp metal, you know, nature doesn't do straight lines. Yeah. Don't stay away from it. Um, they teach you combat first aid, which boils down to wrap a tourniquet around yeah, it and run sort put of thing. pressure fa- on things. You know, yeah. I, yeah. I'd, I'd taken an actual first aid course and they, and they said, no, no, forget all of that. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be people shooting at you. I mean, this idea that it's, you know... The idea that, that covering war makes you a war correspondent and it's very bang-bang and, yeah. you know, that sort of Hemingway thing is not really true. Most of the time, what you're really doing is just talking to people who have no alternatives. They're, you right. know, people who have – who are having this happen to them. You know, we we live in a part of the world that's fortunate enough to do things to other parts of the world. And, and when you say war reporter, you know, I was fortunate enough to cover – to cover conflicts uh, a few times in my life, but really, what you're covering is a group of people who have no choice but to move backwards in time because they are subjected to what war does to the losing side. And what goes through
0: your head as you're do, as you're exposed to all of this? Because for most of us, we've never seen anything like that before. Or many of us, anyway. Um, what goes through your head as you're as you're on the ground?
1: A lot of things, but one of the more interesting ones being the sense of symmetry. Um, you know. You you see people's reactions and they're not that far removed from how I believe I would react in the same situation or how I believe anyone here would react in the same situation. Um, you know some of the, the the things that that inform the book have to do with that idea of symmetry. I've you know in my in I've been a, I was a journalist for ten years, and um, in my assignments I've been tear gassed exactly twice, <laughs> once when I was in Cairo covering the the Arab Spring demonstrations and the other time when I was in Ferguson Missouri covering the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. And the visual language was the same. The kind of heavily militarized police presence was the same. Um, the sense of outrage and of frustration, the sort of overwhelming frustration that becomes a kind of desperation was also the same. And so what I got from it was a sense of symmetry that we're not, we're not that different.
0: Anywhere you go. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's, been, there's been no situation where I, felt, where I felt like, oh, this is a really foreign type of suffering, or this, is, you know, this would never happen in, in the part of the world where I live. Has never been the case.
0: And what does it do to your psyche to be tear gas? To or maybe the the realization that this would be the same in my part of the world if this was happening here. How does yeah. it play on your mind?
1: I mean, at the end of the day, you are sort of tourist. You get to leave, um, you know, and 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 you get to realize just how fortunate you are to to sort of witness this piece of history, but then go back to the safe part of the world where mm-hmm. where you don't have to deal with this on a daily basis. I mean, when I set out to write the book. I didn't know if I had the talent for, to write a good book, but I, I hoped at least that I would write a dangerous one. I hoped at least that the book would have claws. But I have the privilege of doing that because I live in the part of the world which so far allows me to do that. There are There's a writer in Egypt who's been imprisoned for, I want to say, years because he wrote a sex scene right. that offended somebody. Um, and so most of all, it gives you the sense that you are very, very privileged to have won this sort of geopolitical historical lottery and end up where you are in the world.
0: The book is called American War. My guest is Omar el Uh So you're, you're covering events all over the world. Are you writing fiction in your off hours when, there aren't, when you're not being tear gassed? <laughs> Are you writing stories?
1: I, I was writing fiction from the get-go. So I was yeah. at the Globe 10 years and I wrote this, this American War is the fourth novel. Um, and it's the first one that left the hard drive.
0: Yeah, so I, I was gonna I was gonna get to that. So tell me, mm-hmm. what are these other three, and are they are they are, are they test runs? I mean, I I've, I've written a bunch of books as well, and and I have things that are sitting around in various states of completion that will either see the light or not, depending on how much work I'm willing mm-hmm. to do to go back in and, and massage them and to fix mm-hmm. them. Um, uh, will anyone ever see these, or would these really just test runs for you.
1: Yeah. If you ever see these published, it means we're trying for a cash grab. It means I've, I've been fortunate enough to become so famous that I can now publish these. No, um, they were they were sit-ups. They, yeah. were, they were working the muscles to the point. So I'd, I would finish these things. Mostly I would write between sort of midnight and 5 a.m. American War was written that way as well. Um, and I would get, you know, for the first three, I would get to the end of the book and I knew that I'd reached the end and I knew that I said what right. I wanted to say. And sometimes it didn't feel very good, but you can fix writing. You yeah. can fix bad writing. Mostly they just didn't feel necessary. Mm. You know, there's, the, there's an idea in my mind that there's only two reasons to write. There's either vanity or necessity. You know, there's I want to say or I want to be heard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and American War was the first one that I didn't know if it was good or not, but at least it felt necessary. It felt like I, I needed to say something, you know, I needed to get. Um, so that was the only difference between them. But but the other ones were just, you just work the muscles. You get better at it.
0: Writing between uh, and this stood out for me. Writing between twelve midnight and five a.m. in the morning. I mean, you have time then, I suppose. You're not, you know, there's no other demands on you. But that's just it. There's no other demands. You can't really call anybody. You can't procrastinate. You can't. There any of the things that writers tend to do other than write, uh, you can't really do during those hours. You can't. Oh yeah, I've got a bunch of errands to run. I should go do those and then come back. Was that it, or was it literally it was just no, the most convenient time for
1: you? But you can check every website on the internet. You can. No <laughs> you, <laughs> what was my startup routine was to literally read everything on the web um, no it was it was the free time I'm, I'm very much a night person uh, and so it would allow me to do that and um, and then on the weekends you would edit and go through it and there were days when I had negative word counts you know you would yeah. sit down and, and you would read and it would be the stuff you did the night before was awful Um so it was. I don't recommend it. It was a terrible idea, um, but it was the only means by which I could actually do this.
0: But that was sort of, I suppose, your your training. You're going to school. You put yourself through school, <laughs> writing these three books that were that were test runs.
1: I guess so. Yeah. Um, and it was also a nice antidote to to journalism, which by necessity is is short and direct. This is a,
0: a book that came about, if you're just joining us now, a book that came about after Omar had spent years covering uh, the trials at Guantanamo Bay, the Arab Spring protests in Egypt, the Black Lives Matter movement in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, all sorts of things like that. You say that a lot of the world of this book is uh, based on things that you learned on those assignments. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, th- I mean, thematically, there's, there's two sources of research. There's the things I saw... Um, in places like Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, um, Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and then there's things I researched about the first civil war, which is something I had never had any education about. Um, and both find their way in there. Um, there's things as simple as you know the, the the scene with the polio vaccination team. There's a scene where there's a, the polio vaccination officer who's wandering through a camp in the south, a refugee camp in the south, and that's based on time I spent with, with polio vaccination officers in, in uh, the suburbs of Kandahar. Um, the layout of the refugee camp in the book is is based in large part on the NATO airfield and the um, – there is a camp, a tent city in Guantanamo Bay called Camp Justice where they put up visiting media um, <laughs> and and all tent cities, all of these sort of military tent cities in wartime look exactly the same. So they're, they're sort of based on that. Um, there's a, uh, a a detainment camp in the book called Camp Sugarloaf, which is pretty obviously based on Guantanamo Bay, and the things that happened there are based on on research I did on on Bagram and, and the sort of you know enhanced interrogation, I guess is the euphemism for it. Uh, but a lot of that works its way into the book.
0: And. When you started off writing this, you had – again, if you're just joining us, you had written three books kind of as test runs to to working uh, into this one. But it's called American War. But you never really intended to write a book about America or war. But then here we are.
1: And so yeah. how did that happen? <laughs> so <laughs> I started the book in the, in the summer of, of 2014. I finished it almost exactly a year later. Yeah. Um, a couple of weeks after I finished it, Donald Trump announced he was running for president. Uh, and since that time, it's it's been seen, at least in America, it's been seen in that light, in mm-hmm. the light of, you know, I hear the word timely a lot. I hear this idea that it's a warning or, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, but once I started writing, what I really wanted to do and what I think the book is about is Surat Chestnut, the, the title character. It's about her transformation from this stubbornly curious young girl, this this defiant young girl— and how her qualities are sort of turned against her. Um, and to me, it's, it's really a, it's a novel about the universal language of suffering and revenge and, and how those things come about. But, you know, in, it's it's really hard to publish a book called American War in America and not have it be received a certain way.
0: Well, and and right at this time in history, too. So do you think that people saying, oh, what a timely thing you've done? How did you just write this in the last three months and get it out so quickly? Because obviously it takes years to get something like this going. So is is it being called timely going to hurt or help or how do you think it will be received in that way?
1: I'm I'm fortunate just to be published. Uh, you know, this wasn't this wasn't something where I sat around and thought, you know, one day it's going to get reviewed in the New York Times. That certainly wasn't right. my expectation. Um, I subscribe to the notion put forward by you know people like uh, like Borges w- who say that the author's intent doesn't much matter. Um, right. You know, after you after the book goes out into the world. How it's received. If someone thinks it's timely, that's fantastic. I will gladly take credit that I don't deserve. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, prophetic this or you know, that, that's fine. Um, but at some point, this very surreal age that we're in is going to end. Um, and and I would hope that the book stands on its own, without without being related to a to a certain very unique, very surreal point in history.
0: Without being propped up by that history. Yeah, I, I would hope so. Uh, so. There's a lot going on in this book, and mm-hmm. to keep track of all of this, I had a friend of mine. When he was writing anything that was really complicated, he he hung pages all over his walls and had, mm-hmm. uh, and and would stand in front of them and sort of like a little road map to what he was writing. Uh, you had to do kind of a similar thing here, just to keep everything straight in your head. Yes,
1: it, it the the room I wrote it in looked like. Um, that scene from A Beautiful Mind, if none of the equations added up, <laughs> <laughs> there would just be strange maps that made no sense because uh, the world of this book is a world in which uh, there's been massive sea level rise. So the coasts of the United States are gone. There's mm-hmm. been a massive inland exodus to the to the center of the continent. Uh, Florida is gone. Um, and so I would draw up these maps of what I thought this world would look like. And the, the very strange thing that I didn't realize till later is I had my computer on one end of the room and behind me on on the back wall i had a giant wall map of the united states with all of these push pins of you know the quarantine area is here right. this is where the 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 epidemic breaks out this is where the battle of east texas happens and what i what i didn't realize at the time i was still working at the globe and mail and so every now and then i would have to do these skype hits with with the newsroom and what I didn't realize that anyone looking at this video would see over my shoulder a map that said, you know, this is the area that's firebombed or, you know, <laughs> that, that, that must have raised some eyebrows. But, yeah, the room was full of, of fake maps and sort of continuity charts and stuff.
0: And, and it just it, – it feeds you. Does it feed your imagination to see that or is it just simply a way of keeping it all straight?
1: It's a little bit of both. Uh, in fact, the actual – sort of the way the book is laid out. So there's there's the chapters that tell the narrative, but mm-hmm. then between chapters, there are these fake source documents, yeah, yeah. Uh, historical records, uh, you know, copies of letters and news articles. And that started out as a way to keep track of things. That started out for me as a way to sort of remember what I had done with this world. And then I realized that inserting them into the, into the, the book gave me a kind of Texture that I that I wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. So the the the, the key example being something like um, towards the end of the book there is a source document that's a letter from a detainee at this camp that's based on Guantanamo Bay yeah. and and the letter has been censored and so you get a lot of black lines on right. the page and that, that was the sort of thing that was really interesting to me because I couldn't put that in the narrative directly that was that was something I could only do with the source documents.
0: So yeah, and and those sort of to me struck me as being. Uh, Cinematic, in a way, in the sense that directors in film will use visual clues like that in a way that you can't really work easily into a narrative. Were you influenced by any films?
1: I was influenced by so i I started my education about the Civil War. This isn't a film, but I started my education of civil war by watching the Ken Burns documentary, yeah, yeah, yeah. all yeah. six thousand hours of it, you know it's <laughs> um, the thing that influenced me the most was was not a film. It was not a novel. It was a work of nonfiction by a guy named James Agee, who is one of my favorite authors. Mm-hmm. He has a novel called A Death in the Family. It's probably my favorite book. But this book is called, um, it's called uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And what it was was, uh, I think it's, this must have been in the 30s. Uh, Agee was sent down to the South on assignment for a magazine. They wanted a piece on uh, sharecroppers, on the poor farmers of the South. And he went there and he lived with a couple of these families. And he came back and he said, uh, you know, I know you wanted a magazine article, but here's 500 pages. And they said, get away from us. We're not going to print any of this because you spend 20 pages describing a bedroom. Yeah. You know, we can't. But it was a fascinating look at at the detail of, of a life that doesn't have much say in the world. Right. Uh, and that was the most influential book when I was writing this whole, it was the most influential anything when I was writing this. Uh,
0: the book is called American War. Omar El Akat is my uh, guest. Um, things like that, you seem uh, to to draw from so many uh, uh, sources, nonfiction, you know, film, everything. Um, is it hard to turn it off at the end of the day or is the mind always sort of reeling a little bit?
1: It is, it is. Most of my writing involves no writing. It involves, (laughs) you know, lying in bed and thinking about it or in the shower thinking about it or driving to the coast, you know, there's those sort of moments of solitude where you can work through a scene. Um, and that, that is very hard to turn on and it's very hard to turn off. So right now I'm working on a story and it takes me a week just to get back into that mind frame. It takes me a week to get out of it.
0: Are you able to, right now, you're you're about to get very busy. You're you're at the very <laughs> beginning of a publicity tour that will take you across Canada into the US. You're going to be all mm-hmm. over the place. Um, are you able to write during these times or is, is it just, you know, got to focus on the job here at hand, which is chatting up the new book?
1: I am barely able to write. I'm I'm... Somewhat able to edit what I've already written, Um, but writing for me is not easy. Um, It's mostly mostly a function of anxiety. I I start writing, um, and what in my mind feels feels crystal clear and very clever ends up on the pages drivel, and I have to rewrite it and rewrite and rewrite it. And that process, which destroys the ego is very hard to do when you then have to turn around in the morning and talk about how great you are and how great the book <laughs> is and try to sell copies. You know, th- those two things don't don't mix very well.
0: The book is is looks to me like it's poised to do very well. It is timely whether it was meant to be or not. I think it's probably a timely story that people will be very interested in hearing about. How does it feel now to be sitting here on the the eve of your first, you know, fiction Uh, hitting the bookstores and, you know, looks like uh, things are going to go well. How does it feel?
1: Um, Surreal and thoroughly undeserved. Um, (laughs) It's it's an odd exercise because you are sort of – you spend – I spent about two, two and a half years on this between the writing and then the editing and the cleaning up. And it's every morning you wake up and you have to – Tell yourself that it's not worthless you have to sort of remind yourself that it's because at the end of the day I'm making things up that's what I do for a living now I make things up
0: Um, does that feel odd being how for so long you were a journalist and slavish to the truth does it feel odd now to you
1: yeah I mean journalism in a lot of cases for me felt felt like the truth in which there were certain truths you couldn't say right Um, and then fiction is a lie in which you can bury certain truths, and those are the ones that don't you can't get out in, right. in nonfiction. Um, and I realize that's a really convoluted way of putting <laughs> it, but I, I think you get the the yeah, sense yeah. of what i'm what I'm trying to get at. Um, and so it's 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 very strange to go from from the idea that the world you have to sort of decipher the world to going to you have to invent the world. Um, that was an odd thing, but 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 there are things I learned from journalism that that cleaned up the writing and cleaned up the thought process about the writing. I don't think – I mean independent of all the sort of this is drawn from Afghanistan, this is right. drawn from – independent of all of that, I don't think I could have written the narrative if I didn't have that kind of education, if I didn't have somebody to sort of temper the the, the writing.
0: Well, and, and also help focus the story. Yeah. I mean it, yeah. really when you're in the field, when you're doing any sort of journalism, there's only the, – the thing that matters – is the story is mm-hmm. starting at A and getting to Z in a way that sort of works in a in a in a very linear kind of uh, hopefully interesting way, but the story matters in a in a very big way.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was um, it was very early on in my journalism that I, I they, at the Edmonton Journal, my very first paid journalism gig, I was a summer intern. They sent me out to cover a funeral, and I went there thinking, okay, it's a funeral, they want dramatic writing because that's what you do when you yeah. describe a funeral. Of course, it's not what you do at all. Yeah. And I remember this conversation I had with my editor where I called him up. He wanted me to call him up and tell him what my lead was, how I was planning to open the story. And I said something like, you know, under a clear blue sky, blah, 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 blah. And there was a pause and he said, everything that happened in Edmonton today happened under a clear blue sky. Find yourself another lead. And I think I, I think I needed that. I needed a lot of that to get to
0: where I am. Is it hard to go back after you've spent two and a half years on this, and you're you know you're writing and editing constantly? I would imagine. Do you do you uh, edit as you go along, or do you write first and go back and edit?
1: I um, I write uh, first and then. I will, when I get to the end of a chapter, I'll reread it. Right. What I'm trying to do now is every morning, I think I stole this from William Gibson. I forget which author was talking about it. He talks about every morning he'll get up. Um, and before before he starts writing, he'll read everything he wrote up until that point. Mm-hmm. So when you're getting to the end of a novel, I assume he's yeah. reading the I don't believe that for a second. Maybe he's superhuman. I don't yeah. know. But but I try now You'd never to never get any writing done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean he's he says that he's more familiar, I guess, with his own writing mm-hmm. style, so he can get through it quickly. But I I've tried to do a variation of that where I read as much as I can of you know the previous chapter or something every time, um, and so that's what I'm doing now.
0: And is it hard to you know kill your babies as they say when you have something that you really like a line that you think is clever or. Descriptive, or you know, you say you have a tendency to the flowery, which isn't really evident in this book. <laughs> Thank but, you, you're kind. But but uh, is it difficult sometimes to go? You know what? I love it, but it just doesn't belong there.
1: It's very difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult. Um, it's it's. I mean, writing generally is this sense of of trying to balance intense anxiety with intense ego. Um, and so the example from American War has to do with a line which is not in the final copy, but is in some of the advanced copies. Right. Um, and it was goes to, towards the end of the book. Um, and it's the character. The character is a large she's, – she's physically large. She's mm-hmm. tall and broad. And she's – you know, it's the end of the book. She's sort of a broken-down character. And I have her standing in the kitchen, and she's shucking corn. And the only reason I have her doing this is so that I could describe her <laughs> as – the, the hulking husk of the husking <laughs> hulk, which I loved. I love right. that line. And at some point, an editor had to sit me down and say, look, you're trying to be clever. Like, yeah. you know." I, and then so with much – very reluctantly, I, I, I agreed to lose that line. Yes, it's very difficult to do that, but it's very necessary. And for two and a half years,
0: you're working on this uh, presumably every day or pretty much every day. How do you keep enthusiasm for a project over that amount of time?
1: I don't. Um, I, I honestly. And I'm, I'm not being. I'm not trying to be clever here. But but I honestly, towards the end, you know, I've read this book 13 times. Yeah. yeah. I've never read any other book 13 times. I've read plenty of better books. Um. You know. <laughs> so you get towards the end, and and every morning, it just feels, you know, what's novel or good about the book is already is so stale from having gone over. Yeah. And what the flaws are glaring, and so you get to this place where you have to wake up every morning and say but go on anyway. Yeah, fine, but go on.
0: Well, that's what I was interested when you were saying that William Gibson read—you know starts to read everything again because I think if you get overly familiar with it, you lose the charm of it, I think, after a while.
1: Yeah, I mean, the there's... The jokes aren't uh,
0: as funny the 29th <laughs> time you've read them.
1: Exactly, you know? yeah. And, and there's there's various approaches. I think Stephen King talks about the idea that after you're done, you just let it go for, you know, six weeks or six months yeah. or something. You just set it aside. Um, and I, I, I think there's... There's all kinds of approaches, but I don't think there's a fundamental way to get around the idea that by the time people get to read this book, it the initial magic for me is, is sort of gone, um, yeah. you know. And I think that's the same with any creative work that takes a long time to produce is that, you know, by the time it gets to people – You've lived it so much that it's impossible to keep living.
0: I'm speaking with Omar El El Akkad. Uh, The book is called American War. And I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that, though, as creative people, you're always kind of looking forward to the next thing. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that you're going to dwell on one thing for a very long time probably mm-hmm. doesn't work for most people. I, it, most people are uh, – or most creative people, I think, are sort of restless spirits that will, you know, always be thinking about, well, what's after this? And I mm-hmm. think that's part of the problem of, of working on something for a very mm-hmm. long time is that it's not the new, fresh, shiny dime that you want maybe necessarily to feed your imagination
1: yeah absolutely, absolutely. and i'm also I mean, naturally, I'm not good at editing. I think there's some people you know, i think I, I don't remember. I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who talked about the idea that there's only two types of writers. there's bashers and there's swoopers. Right. There's the people who will sit and think about a line and think about a line yeah. and think about and then they'll write it down and they won't touch it again. And then there's people who will write it down immediately and then edit and edit and edit and edit yeah. Um and I wasn't good at the latter. I wasn't good at the idea of going back and editing over and over again. but when you're publishing a novel, you have no choice. That yeah. first draft is a mess, um, you know. And so I had to I had to learn that skill of just going back and over it and over and over.
0: Yeah, and there's the famous story about someone who said to James Joyce, you know, how did the writing go today? And he said, oh, it, was, it was not bad. It was a pretty good day for me. I got uh, seven words down. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, seven words? That's good for you. He goes, they're not all in the right order yet. <laughs> But the, I got seven of them down. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the idea. I, I tend to, when I write, I tend to uh, edit as I go. I'm very, uh, I, I'll, I'll write a sentence and then I'll go back and I will work on that thing until I feel I can move on.
1: And will you will you show it to people before it's done?
0: It's or? pretty rare. Uh, I worked on a, a one of a, a book, I write nonfiction. I write about film and, and uh, I wrote a book about uh, a movie called The Devils few years ago, Ken Mm -hmm. Russell movie that was Mm -hmm. banned and censored on release. And it's a fascinating story. I hunt down all these 80 year olds who had worked on the film when it was made in the seventies, did the Mm -hmm. entire thing, worked on it for years, two and a half, three years. Uh, And that one I showed around a little bit because I was so close to it by the time it was time for it to come out. I couldn't tell anymore. Right. I had lost my perspective on it. One hundred percent. I hmm. couldn't tell whether I was just being self indulgent, whether the story made sense. I didn't know anymore. Right. And that's, I think, the danger of living it really it in is. that way.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have, I have, uh, my friend Anna is my first reader on on everything. Yeah. She's. She's a world class masochist because she read the other three. She read the really <laughs> terrible <laughs> ones, um, and and but even you know uh, even with her, I'll, I'll show the finished thing. I, I didn't really show show the book to anybody until it was completed.
0: Yeah, I don't love the idea what they call them, beta readers. I don't really yeah. love the idea of of it because I i uh, for the same reason that I don't love the idea of, like, really testing of film out there, these test audiences mm-hmm. that they'll show. And, you know, they'll change the end of the film if, you know, enough people yeah. in Idaho yeah. said, well, I don't know, <laughs> I think they should have lived at the end or whatever. And I don't love it. I, I, I think that, you know, the vision has to come for better or for worse from the author or the director or or whatever, whoever is in charge creatively, whatever form it is. Mm-hmm. And uh And, yeah, so – I'm I'm not all about readers.
1: Yeah, I think I think of it as um, it's you need a very specific kind of person yeah. to do that early reading because you know you go up to someone and tell them hey I've been building a car do you want to test drive yeah. it? and they think yeah I drive cars all the time and so you give them four wheels and an engine and you say here you go <laughs> and it's you know I showed people the, the earliest drafts and it's you know it's a mess it's, it's you have to imagine what it could be sort of thing.
0: Uh, in studio, my guest is Omar El Kadad. Oh, I I fucked that up. <laughs> We'll edit that. In studio, my guest is Omar El Akkad. In studio, my guest is Omar El Akkad. The book is called American War. Uh, Really fascinating book. Um, What's now happening for you? What's
1: new? Uh, Virtually everything. So the book tour um, uh, takes place now. Um, I'll be on the road for a little bit. We were fortunate enough to sell the rights in in a lot of Europe, so the European editions uh, come out in the fall, uh, and I suspect there'll be some travel associated with that. Uh, And then I I found out that we sold the Arabic language rights, which is fascinating to me, and I can't wait to see that. Um, And then I'm I'm working on the next thing. You know, I have a a 25% success rate of these novels actually making out into the world, so I'm not optimistic, but but I I do have another story that I'm working on, and I I hope it turns out okay. (laughs)
0: Omar El I enjoyed talking to him. He lives in the United States now. Otherwise, I'd have him on the show every single week. What a guy. What an interesting guy and what a great writer. American War is in bookstores, fine and not so fine, right now. Uh, That's it. It's time to subject yourself to the world. It's time to get back out there and see what's going on become one of those sidewalk shuffling zombies along with everybody else. I hope you enjoyed your stay with us though and be sure to come back next week. We put up a new show every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. This week, I'd like to thank my guests, Courtney, Terry Jones, Omar El Akkad. Most of all though, thanks to you. Without you, there'd be no point in having these conversations. So I'm really glad you come by. Make sure you come by again next week.